to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. Memory and perception seem like entirely distinct experiences, and neuroscientists used to be confident that the brain produced them differently, too. But new work shows how and why they're different. That's next. Space travel depends on clever math. Find unexplored solar systems in Quantum Magazine's new daily math game, Hyperjumps. Hyperjumps challenges you to find simple number combinations to get your rocket from one exoplanet to the next. Spoiler alert, there's always more than one way to win. Test your astral arithmetic at hyperjumps.quantumagazine.org. In the 1990s, neuroimaging studies revealed that parts of the brain that were thought to be active only during sensory perception are also active during the recall of memories. Sam Ling is an associate professor of neuroscience and director of the Visual Neuroscience Lab at Boston University. It started to raise the question of whether a memory representation is actually different from perceptual representation at all, right? Is it just a completely blurred boundary? And when we're remembering something or recalling something or storing something in memory, is that effectively just a recreation of the thing that you've seen or are remembering? For example, could our memory of a beautiful meadow in a forest glade be just a recreation of the neural activity that previously enabled us to see it? How people have thought about this has changed a lot over the years. That's Christopher Baker, an investigator at the National Institute of Mental Health. He runs the Learning and Plasticity Unit. People's ability to measure what's happening during perception and memory has just improved enormously. Basically, the argument has swung from being this debate over whether there's even any involvement of sensory cortices to saying, oh, wait a minute, is there any difference? (laughs) It's like the pendulum has swung from one side to the other, but it swung too far, in my view. Even if there's a very strong neurological similarity between memories and experiences, we know that they can't be exactly the same. Sarah Favela is a postdoctoral scientist at Columbia University and the lead author of a recent nature communications study. On the one hand, there's all these studies saying that perception and memory are similar. On the other hand, like people don't get confused between them in a healthy adult. They are different. Our experience of them is different. And pinning down exactly the ways in which they're different, I think, will be important to understanding how memory is expressed. The work of Favola's team has identified at least one of the ways in which memories and perceptions of images are assembled differently at the neurological level. When we look at the world, visual information about it streams through the photoreceptors of the retina and into the visual cortex, where it is processed sequentially in different groups of neurons. Each group adds new levels of complexity to the image, Simple dots of light turn into lines and edges, then contours, then shapes, then complete scenes that embody what we're seeing. In the new study, the researchers focused on a feature of vision processing that's very important in the early groups of neurons, where things are located in space. The pixels and contours making up an image need to be in the correct places, or else the brain will create a shuffled, unrecognizable distortion of what we're seeing. 
The researchers trained participants to memorize the positions of four different patterns on a backdrop that resembled a dartboard. Each pattern was placed in a very specific location on the board and associated with a color at the center of the board. Each participant was tested to make sure that they had memorized this information correctly, that if they saw a green dot, for example, they knew the star shape was at the far left position. Then, as the participants perceived and remembered the locations of the patterns, the researchers recorded their brain activity. The brain scans allowed the researchers to map out how neurons recorded where something was, as well as how they later remembered it. Here's Favela again. One thing that we're really taking advantage of in this study is that visual cortex has groups of neurons that prefer certain aspects of visual stimuli. And one of those things is space. So if you're familiar with a concept of receptive field of a neuron, like a neuron will care about only a specific part of the visual world. So if a neuron cares about this part of the visual world, it's only going to fire when you put something in that little spot. That's a single neuron. But one thing that we're really taking advantage of here is those neurons are organized topographically in the brain in a really coarse way. So all the neurons that care about this part of space are right next to each other. Since neurons that are tuned to a certain spot in space tend to cluster together, their activity is easy to detect in brain scans. Previous studies of visual perception established that neurons in the early, lower levels of processing have small receptive fields, and neurons in later, higher levels have larger ones. This makes sense, because the higher-tier neurons are compiling signals from many lower-tier neurons, drawing in information across a wider patch of the visual field. But the bigger receptive field also means lower spatial precision producing an effect like putting a large blob of ink over North America on a map to indicate New Jersey. In effect, visual processing during perception is a matter of small, crisp dots, evolving into larger, blurrier, but more meaningful blobs. But when Favola and her colleagues looked at how perceptions and memories were represented in the various areas of the visual cortex, they discovered major differences. As participants recalled the images, the receptive fields in the highest level of visual processing were the same size they had been during perception, but the receptive fields stayed that size down through all the other levels, painting the mental image. The remembered image was a large, blurry blob at every stage. This suggests that when the memory of the image was stored, only the highest level representation of it was kept. When the memory was experienced again, all the areas of the visual cortex were activated, but their activity was based on the less precise version as an input. So depending on whether information is coming from the retina or from wherever memories are stored, the brain handles and processes it very differently, says Favela. If you kind of lost some of that precision on your way up, the idea is you can't magically get it back. Adam Steele is a postdoctoral researcher at Dartmouth College. I think the primary thing is when we're doing memory, we as experimenters don't know what the person is imagining or what the person is thinking. We have to trust their (laughs) report and their behavior. And people try to think of clever ways to be sure. And that's one of the things that I think this paper 
does exceptionally well is that they're actually able to read out the information from the brain and say, not only have the people reported that they are imagining an object in a specific position, but the brain is reflecting what that position was. That's another really beautiful aspect of this study. Steele calls the empirical work that they did outstanding. But why are memories recalled in this blurrier way? To find out, the researchers created a model of the visual cortex that had different levels of neurons with receptive fields of increasing size. They then simulated an evoked memory by sending a signal through the levels in reverse order. As in the brain scans, the spatial blurriness seen in the level with the largest receptive field persisted through all the rest. Here's Favela. There's this really well-established hierarchy where there's lots of visual areas of the brain. So there's kind of like a cascade of them. And so what we know in vision is that for space, the earliest visual areas have very small receptive fields are narrowly tuned. And as you get higher up the hierarchy, that becomes broader. And when we measured responses in memory, we saw that that kind of hierarchical structure was gone. We think it's because of the way that retinal inputs come in versus the way that top-down inputs go into the system. One theory about why the visual system is arranged hierarchically is that it helps with object recognition. Favola says that system produces blurry memory images. You can imagine if I had really tiny receptive fields, it would be hard to like recognize your face because I need to integrate a lot of different stuff over a big area or recognize like the Eiffel Tower or like a big scene. And so it could be the fact that that organization is super, super important for recognizing things in our everyday lives. And that is kind of the driving force of that organization of the brain. And the consequence of that is that during memory, things are starting, instead of coming in through the system, through the retina, through those small receptive fields, they're coming from somewhere else, coming from the top. And so it's just kind of a consequence of having a system that's been optimized for things like object recognition. Thomas Nasolaris is an associate professor at the University of Minnesota. He wasn't involved in the new study, but came to the similar conclusion that perception and memory look very different in the brain in a 2020 study. What's not clear to me is whether it's a feature or a bug. Nazalaris favors the idea that the difference is advantageous, perhaps in helping to differentiate perceptions from memories. There could be something protective about the loss of spatial precision. We need to be able to tell the difference between what we're looking at and what we're simply imagining. It's very important for obvious reasons that we be able to tell the difference. And so there has to be some signature. A person whose mental imagery had all of the detail and precision of their scene imagery could get confused. The blurriness could also help to prevent storage of unnecessary information. Sarah Favola says maybe the important thing isn't to remember where each pixel sits in the field of vision, but that the pixels belong to a family member or a friend. Here's Nazalaris again. People have mental visual experiences that are independent of retinal input are not driven by retinal input. That can be extremely vivid. So during dreams, and particularly in the period in between sleep and wake states, people will often have very vivid 
dreamlike visualizations that they sometimes have lucid control over. At least in my experience, these can be extremely detailed and they contain the level of spatial precision and detail that my voluntary mental images lack. So it's not like the visual system is incapable of generating highly detailed, vivid, and precise imagery. It just tends not to do it during waking hours and when the recalled item or the imagined scene is under voluntary control. Sarah Favola at Columbia University and her team are hoping to explore whether similar processing happens with other aspects of visual memory, such as shapes or colors. They're especially eager to examine how these differences in perception and memory guide behaviors. Favola says perception and memory are different, and a healthy person doesn't get confused between the two. Our experience of them is different, and pinning down exactly the ways in which they're different, I think will be important to understanding how memory is expressed. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Yasmin Saplakolu's full article, How the Brain Distinguishes Memories from Perceptions, on our website, quantamagazine.org. Explore math mysteries in the Quanta book, The Prime Number Conspiracy, published by the MIT Press. Available now at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore. Also, make sure to tell your friends about the Quanta Magazine Science Podcast and give us a positive review or follow where you listen. It helps people find this podcast. Music